The title of this evening's talk is Equanimity. In uh, Taos, New Mexico, where I live, we have what is considered to be a, a sacred mountain. It's one amongst many mountains that surround the Taos Valley. This sacred mountain is actually within the Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians that sits on the north edge of the town of Taos. This particular mountain is sacred to the Tiwa people. And it's also in some way a sacred symbol for many Taosenos. And I have the good fortune to be able to look out at it and take it in in every season, any time of the day or night, on any day of the year, as it's very clearly visible from where I live. This mountain, any mountain, simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain and hail fall on it, snow covers it, lightning strikes it, fires sometimes rage on it. All sorts of life forms are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. The mountain remains unshakable, unwavering. The mountain of radical acceptance, the mountain of impartiality, the mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is a live energy, a lively energy, but only exists in relationship to all of the myriad, lively, constantly changing energies that constitute it. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that is intricately and intimately connected to it. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on. It isn't attached or averse to anything. We might say it lets life live through it, through itself. Closing off to nothing, holding on to nothing. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. This evening we'll explore equanimity, upeka in Pali. Equanimity is a powerful force in our practice, a powerful force in the whole of our life. In the Buddha's teachings, it's included as one of the ten paramis, one of the ten perfections, which I'll speak about a little bit um, this coming week. It's also included as one of the four Brahma-viharas, one of the four divine abidings which are metta, loving-kindness, karuna, equanimity, mudita, appreciative joy, and upeka, equanimity. It's one of the two jhana factors that's present in the fourth jhana. 
and it's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. And just to review those, their mindfulness, investigation, effort or energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Upeka was the final factor to come into maturity as the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree that now famous night. With an evenness and balance in his relaxed and powerful presence, as though he were an immovable mountain. As he sat there in his amazing grace, seeing things clearly and relinquishing, letting go, relinquishing every attachment to all formations of body and mind, breaking through to the great liberation, the great awakening breaking through to the complete ending of suffering. Equanimity is the fearlessness, the power and the equilibrium of the mind, the heart, to experience all kinds of change. The fearlessness, the power and the balance of mind to experience every sort of manifestation and change in the realms of internal and external formations and in the realm of feeling the pleasant or unpleasant feeling that's associated with the arising change and passing of internal and external phenomena. The Buddha described what he called six-limbed equanimity the equanimity of one whose afflictive states or cankers, as he sometimes called them, have been destroyed. Destroyed temporarily or destroyed completely, finally. And who abides in the natural state of purity in relationship to desirable or undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. And these are some words from the Buddha. Here a bhikkhu or yogi or meditator whose cankers are destroyed is neither overjoyed nor distraught on seeing a visible object with the eye, hearing an audible sound with the ear, and he goes through each of the sense doors, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. She, he, dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness, great strength and ease of the mind, the heart, to remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal translation of upeka is onlooking. Equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by manifesting a neutral mode, by staying in the center, staying in the middle, watching things as they arise and pass. On looking, it sees them fairly, 
without favoritism, without bias, without partiality. So one attribute of equanimity itself, as it's described in the realm of feeling, is as neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling. The function of equanimity as an enlightenment factor is to inhibit partiality. And so upekka manifests as neutrality. We could say that equanimity is the equipoise, the balance or equilibrium between the opposing forces of the mind of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity offsets the weightiness of greed, the weightiness of aversion. It's that point of balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. The mind, the heart, doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember as a child, I loved to find that point of balance when I was playing on the seesaw, or the teeter-totter, as we used to call it when I was playing with another child on the seesaw, there was always a certain kind of happy and almost breathtaking feeling inside me in those moments when this point of balance would happen. The poet T.S. Eliot said it very beautifully. And these are his words. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards. At the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered. Neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline. Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection, while at the same time being uh, an experience of great spaciousness and strength of mind, strength of heart. The Buddha used the metaphor of putting a spoonful of salt into a cup of water. Because of the small container, the water will be extremely salty, quite harsh, undrinkable. On the other hand, if we put a spoonful of salt into a large body of water, the size of the Rio Grande River, the largest river here in New Mexico, it won't, of course, have the same effect because of the enormous amount of water, because of the great spaciousness that the salt has been put into. Life is quite salty at times. It's just how it is. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of mind, the spaciousness of heart, with which we can meet and 
look on at all of life's everyday experiences, as well as all of the subtleties of internal and external phenomena that we come to know, to see and to know through our practice. To look on with balance, with equipoise, with, with the heart of greatness, with what is called in the suttas in relationship to equanimity as a factor of enlightenment, to look on <clears throat> with specific neutrality. So what does this mean, specific neutrality? <clears throat> it means that whatever states of consciousness are present, including at times the three other divine abidings, metta, karuna, and mudita, the other six enlightenment factors, which I've already mentioned, as well as the arising of various other states of consciousness, such as patience and faith, etc., that they're all met, met and seen, looked on at evenly through the mind, through the heart of equanimity. Again, the function of equanimity is to inhibit partiality. So upeka manifests as neutrality. There's a wonderful little book, a little book of teachings from Zen master Dogen with commentary by Uchiyama Roshi. It's called How to Cook Your Life where Dogen uses the work of the monastery cook, the Tenzo, and our relationship to food to teach us, in this case, about equanimity. And we, of course, can bring this teaching immediately close, right here and right now, in relationship to our cook, our amazing Margaret Tenzo, and also into our life when we're back home. And these are Dogen's words. Handle even a single leaf of a green in such a way that it manifests as the body of the Buddha. This in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. A dish is not necessarily superior because you've prepared it with choice ingredients, nor is a soup inferior because you've made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly with a pure mind and without trying to evaluate their quality in the same way you would prepare a splendid feast. And Dogen, Dogen goes on to say, in practicing the Dharma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same, not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a monk, the mouth of a yogi, is like an oven. Just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and cow dung for cooking without distinction. In Dogen's days they used cow dung instead of propane. Uh, and cow dung for cooking without distinction. Our mouths should be the same. 
There should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. So how does one look on at the mind with equanimity? What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? So, for example, when we practice here in retreat and in our life outside of a retreat setting, when at times the mind is tranquil, serene, and this is known, when we recognize that the focusing power of the mind, concentration, is evenly and repeatedly connecting with whatever the object of attention is. And if you're practicing metta, the connecting with the metta phrases, the particular object of your metta practice, or any of the various states of mind coming up with your metta practice. And when the mind isn't listless, when it isn't agitated, but it's interested and appropriately energized. At those times, we don't feel any necessity. We aren't really interested at all in exerting or restraining or encouraging the mind in any way. Just simply recognizing and knowing that this is what is occurring, that these factors of mind are in place for a brief or maybe for a longer period of time is actually something that contributes to the blossoming of the state or the factor of equanimity, thus contributing to our capacity to relate to all things, all phenomena, with equipoise and composure. During the time in the culture of the Buddha, his metaphor for the mind uh, when it's in this mode was this. One is like the charioteer who looks on with equanimity on horses progressing evenly. Now more likely in our case, uh, the metaphor might be one is like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity at a car that's running along evenly when it's set on cruise control. (laughs) We're able to see, we're able to take in what's in front of us and what's passing by with ease. This quality, this factor of mind, allows the process of practice, the progress of insight to unfold without getting caught, without getting mired in the habits of mind that stop things up. The various habits of clinging, attachment, and identification that can create a block, create a tangle in the flow of the process. Within the ambiance of equanimity, even the subtlety of the habits of identification and the comparing mind can be seen, known, and not clung to. 
allowing understanding to blossom, deepen, and mature. And, as we all know, until equanimity is really truly matured, we lose and regain our balance over and over and over again. Quite a number of years ago, for the whole of the last two weeks of a long retreat that I was sitting, I practiced equanimity. I practiced it in the way that it's practiced as a Brahma-vihara, as one of the divine abidings. So silently repeating one equanimity phrase over and over and over, first directing it to myself, and then on through all of the same categories that are used for metta practice. And the equanimity phrase that is I used, or that is used, I am the heir, the owner of my kama, meaning I am the heir, the owner of my deeds of thought, speech, and body. My happiness or suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. By the end of those two weeks, there was quite a a deep and quiet sense of balance and evenness and neutrality of the mind and the heart. A day uh, before the end of the retreat, the thought came up, there's equanimity here. Seems to be a fairly deep and abiding equanimity. And then the next thought that came up was, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. If this was a Zen session, a good Zen teacher would uh, do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But this is a Vipassana retreat, and Vipassana teachers don't do things like that. And then the thought just disappeared. Well, later that day, I was startled in true Vipassana fashion, an equanimity test Vipassana style. I got a note signed by one of my equanimity teachers, though actually it was a note uh, from all five of the teachers who were teaching that retreat. And the note uh, said, we would like you to give the Dana talk to the yogis tomorrow. (laughs) Well, for a moment, (laughs) equanimity flew out the window. (laughs) In fact, my heart felt like it stopped. The old habit of fear flew in the window, you could say, and the thought came, I can't. I can't do this now. My old habit came up. I've been silent for so many weeks and so deeply into practice. I can't get up in front of all my fellow yogis and speak. Impossible. And then the heart and the mind relaxed and saw what had just occurred. And then the thought came in, ah, this is my equanimity test. (laughs) Of course, and I can do it, and I want to do it. And at that moment, a tremendous flood of gratitude came into the mind and the heart. Gratitude for the teachers, for the retreat center, for the retreat center staff, for the teachings, for the practice. And just as suddenly as it had gone, 
equanimity was back. And what I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to do. Until equanimity has matured, we lose and regain our balance over and over again. We lose and regain the equipoise of equanimity over and over again. Upeka manifests as quieting fear, dislike, resentment, and self-judgment that can manifest as guilt or disapproval or not being good enough. It also manifests as quieting liking, pride, attachment, and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we think of as ourself, me, my experiences. Equanimity also manifests in quieting the attachment and fear that comes up in relationship to others. When equanimity has arisen and is developing, in those moments, fear and resentment, attachment, identification, and the judgments of approval or disapproval subside. Within the clear space of a true neutrality, there's nothing for greed and aversion to stick to when they arise. Equanimity fails when it produces what is called the equanimity of unknowing, which the Buddha called worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. So what does this mean, worldly-minded indifference? It occurs when we don't clearly see or see through the object of our attention with the focused attention of a concentrated mindfulness and investigation. And instead, we're blindly seduced by and swept away in the happenings of life. Seemingly, seemingly equanimous with it all. This isn't upeka. It's what the Buddha called indifference based in or produced by ignorance. And these are words from the Buddha. On seeing a visible object with the eye or in relationship to contact through any of the six sense doors, equanimity arises in the foolish, infatuated, ordinary man or woman, in the untaught, ordinary woman or man who hasn't seen or conquered his or her limitations who hasn't understood or conquered future results, meaning kama, who is unperceiving of danger in relationship to attachment or aversion. Such equanimity doesn't see through the visible object. Such so-called equanimity is actually worldly-minded indifference based in ignorance. The Buddha was wonderfully direct, straightforward, and very succinct in his teaching. I'm sure that every one of us in this room 
knows the pretense of equanimity within ourselves in the midst of greed or dislike, resentment, anger, fear, or disappointment. The glossing over, the ignorance, ignoring these states, maybe pretending to ourself, the pretense of equanimity, the it doesn't really matter stance, or it's it's all just fine kind of attitude, or I'm okay, accompanied maybe by a slight or not so slight moving away, a slight or not so slight contraction. This is not equanimity, but is actually indifference. The near enemy, as it's classically called, the near enemy of equanimity. Indifference masquerading as upeka. And of course we also know from our own experience that when we're inflamed with greed or dislike or fear or resentment, it isn't possible to look on at moments, at those moments, those particular moments, with a true equanimity. Upeka is based on an attentive, clear presence of mind, not on dullness and indifference. It's not a kind of casual passing mood, nor is it produced by exertion. It's the result, it's one of the fruits of our practice. The fruit of training the mind, training the heart, through the development and blossoming of the factors of mindfulness, investigation, a balanced effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, loving-kindness, compassion. And I'd like to read uh, a passage or share a passage with you that I read, uh, offered uh, uh, during the first Dhamma talk uh, that I gave in this retreat uh, on... um, Mindfulness, And if you listen carefully, you'll find that all seven factors of enlightenment are in place within Siddhartha Gautama in this passage. So as those sitting under the Bodhi tree with the Bodhisatta, Siddhartha Gautama, this just about to be Buddha on that now famous night, as he was protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and penetrating sense of investigation, exploration, accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and the flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening, and refreshing joy. Balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gautama sitting under the bow tree that night with an unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence, as though he were an immovable mountain the mountain of equanimity. A 
true equanimity is able to meet all the vicissitudes of life, these flip-flops of the mind that we encounter in our own minds, maybe here in retreat, and that we certainly encounter coming to us in our life outside of the retreat setting. The vicissitudes of praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame or distinction or disrepute or disrespect, disregard. True equanimity is able to meet all of these sometimes harsh-feeling tests and is quickly able to regenerate its strength from one's inner resources, the resources that have been developed through diligent practice. There's an amazing practice that, that was, and maybe still, I don't know if it is, but maybe still is sometimes done by the Hopi Indians. <clears throat> and I don't recommend this practice. But we can take it as a metaphor for us in relationship to the cultivation and the manifestation of the power of fearlessness, evenness of mind and heart, and the protection that one of, that's one of the great strengths of equanimity. And this is from the Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. <clears throat> there were all kinds of snakes. Rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60 all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll on the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved toward an old man, singing with his eyes closed, climbed up his crossed leg, coiled in front of his breech cloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body raising their head to look at the closed eyes and peaceful face, and then going to sleep. It showed that they had found their friend, looking within the heart of this one upon whose body they chose to rest. That is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. True equanimity will possess the power of protection and wholesome resistance in, in relation to the mind, <coughs> the heart, getting seduced by and caught up in states of fear, greed, aversion, and will possess the power of renewing itself only if it's deeply rooted in a growing insight into the true nature of things. There are two particular insights, two particular understandings that I'd like to spend just a little bit of time exploring with you this evening as, as, that as they develop, as they ripen into insight, are really the root of equanimity. 
The first of these is our growing clarity and understanding how the vicissitudes, the ups and downs of life originate. How they come to be, we could say. And this is the understanding of Kama. The understanding that the various experiences of stress, the various experiences of suffering, and the experience of ease are the result of our kama, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed, here and now, in this lifetime, and on back and back and back. This is kama. This is our kama. We're born, we're, we spring out of the womb of kama, we could say. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we're, the undeni- we're undeniably the heirs of our kama. So for instance, as soon as we've spoken words or performed any action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet, it remains with us. And in some way, inevitably returns to us as our due inheritance. We could say that everything that happens, and the ease or the dis-ease in our mind, in our heart, is the outcome of our own mind's relationship to all of the happenings internally and externally. Our suffering and our happiness in this life in any given given moment is due to our own mind. Our motivations, responses or reactions to phenomena. In other words, due to our actions of body speech and mind, not due to our wishes for ourselves, and not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic or seemingly strange or foreign world. It's due to our own mind. Our motivations, responses, or reactions to whatever phenomena occurs internally and externally. As this understanding begins to take root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. And so is the first basis for equanimity. When, in fact, everything that happens around us and within us, we begin to see... Excuse me, I have to repeat that. When, in fact, with everything that happens around us and within us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, what is there to fear? I think this is a really important, I'm going to repeat it (laughs) again. (laughs) When, in fact, with everything that happens around us and within us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, What is there to fear? The heart begins to relax. 
and we begin to know that we can change our mind that we're not trapped on the karmic wheel running around and around and around like a gerbil but of course as we've all experienced fear, uncertainty, insecurity arise along the way and at times as we traverse this path we clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through our good deeds refuge from this perspective is in wholesome thought wholesome motivation wholesome words and performing wholesome actions as we take this refuge there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more and more wholesome deeds right now even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life our practice itself this incredible training of the mind this incredible training of the heart is a very good deed the best deed really and the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in through all aspects of our life one of the things that's really been important for me in the understanding of Kama is that it's always always the right time to perform wholesome actions to do good deeds it's never too late and so we practice this it becomes established in us it becomes a refuge and at some point we know for sure as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples more and more increases the misery and evil more excuse me more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past and this present life I try to make it spotless and pure what else then can the future bring other than increase of the good this, as this becomes more and more a certainty in our own heart in our own mind the mind becomes more tranquil and serene and we gain the great strength of a patient heart and the evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties in our practice and in our life as a whole as the refuge of doing good deeds becomes our way our deeds become our friend rather than our adversary even if sometimes the result of deeds bring us maybe sorrow or discomfort or pain maybe via the way that others treat us or through some upheaval or some turmoil in our life or in some maybe surprising or unrecognizable phenomena in our practice that shows up and even sometimes if the results that occur aren't what we expected not what we had in mind results that maybe are even contrary to what we might think our motivation was 
many, many years ago now, I had a therapist who would sometimes say to me, or actually more accurately say for me at appropriate times, this isn't what I had in mind. (laughs) Which would always kind of stop me in my tracks and move me to take a look, a very close look at my expectations and at my motivations. And more, most importantly in that moment, to simply be with what was occurring with an open heart and as clear a mind as was possible at that time. If we make suffering our teacher, then in a sense it becomes our friend. Maybe it's sometimes kind of a stern and in a certain way quite a demanding teacher. Yet potentially it's a truthful and well-intended friend. We learn about ourselves, which seems to be our most difficult subject. Along the way of our practice, the development and blossoming of relative equanimity with the development of this, this relative equanimity, we find that we have the strength to endure when we need to endure. And we see clearly when that's called for. In befriending suffering or in looking at it directly and clearly, by looking at it directly and clearly, we have the possibility of not continuing to just keep blindly falling into the same holes over and over again, but to begin to walk down a different street. The teachings of Kama and the understanding therein can imbue us with a powerful motivation to free ourselves from Kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering to free ourselves from repeatedly being born or repeatedly being reborn in the realm of suffering in this very life. As we more and more clearly see our own craving and delusion and our habitual tendencies to create and engage in situations that strain and sap our strength and what we could call our healthy resistance a wholesome disgust, as the Buddha called it, arises. And our motivation to practice in order to free ourselves from craving and delusion is strengthened. So the first insight that's the basis of equanimity is the understanding of Kama. The second insight that equanimity is based on is the teaching and the understanding of anatta, not-self. From this perspective, there's no one, no self, performing any deeds. Nor do the the results affect any self. The fact is, the truth is, that it's the delusion of a separate solid self, a separate me, that creates suffering and disturbs equanimity. If we claim ownership 
This is mine. This is me. This is who I am. The vicissitudes of life will always throw us into the realm of suffering. So for instance, if this or that aspect of our personality, some particular quality of ours is criticized or blamed, one thinks, I am blamed. And equanimity is shaken. We receive approval or praise for something we've done and one thinks, I've been praised. I'm a success. And again, equanimity is disturbed. If this or that work that we've done doesn't succeed or isn't praised in the way that we want it to be, one thinks, my work has failed or I have failed. And equanimity is shaken again. If wealth or a loved one is lost, one thinks, what's mine has gone. And, again, equanimity is shaken. The unwavering mountain of equanimity is always shaken in the delusion of the identification of me, mine, I am. As understanding deepens and the heart opens, there is an easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. Unshakable equanimity is established by giving up, by relinquishing all possessive thoughts, the thoughts of mine, which itself might be quite a daunting thought. So we begin with the small things from which it's easy to detach oneself and gradually working up to the possessions, goals, and identifications that we so tenaciously cling to. The first time that I taught at the Forest Refuge was for two months, and uh, I was the first visiting teacher there. I was there long enough to really uh, settle in. And yet again and again and again, there was the awareness that the house that I was staying in wasn't mine. And it came about in small, simple, and sometimes quite surprising ways. When I first got there, there was no telephone in the house. And it was difficult. Uh, because whenever I wanted to, uh, for instance, wanted to go and check or send email, I had to carry my computer over to the tiny Yogi telephone booth that was in another building, in the administration building. So I lobbied for a phone. <laughs> Which in moments felt like it was for me. And there was quite a degree of tension and stress in this. But in truth, the phone was for the many, many others who would be using that house over many, many years to come. At one point, I was told that it was okay that a phone would be put into the house. But when that would happen was unknown. <laughs> And at that point, there was a very quick letting go. No more thoughts about it occurred. And I relaxed, and I truly felt that it didn't matter if the phone arrived while I was staying in the house or not, because it wasn't for me. 
it wasn't mine. And during that same period of time, it was decided uh, to purchase a rug for the living room of that house. So Jeannie, the housekeeper, brought the rug catalog over for us to decide which rug to order. We went shopping together with the rug catalog. It clearly wasn't a rug for me. It wasn't for my house. We were choosing for anyone. We were choosing for everyone. And I noticed that it was such a different experience in the heart and the mind with this. Not that subtle contraction of something being mine, being for me. There was an openness, a spaciousness, no contraction, no clinging in the choosing. And it was way more fun that way. So the small things at first that we think are ours, and working up to giving up, letting go, relinquishing other stickier thoughts of self. Beginning to relinquish the identification with maybe some of the qualities that we're identified with as who we think we are, our personality. It's the thought of these being who I am that we relinquish. The clinging thought of these being who I am that we give up, that we let go of. And that's an important point. So beginning with small aspects of our personality, qualities of seeming minor importance, and very slowly through our practice, working up to letting go of identification, practicing detachment, in relationship to those emotions and aversions that we might regard as the center of our being. Ajahn Sumedho, the abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England, shares a, a, a quite a wonderful way of practicing with this. When a particular habitual tendency of his shows up, and in this case, he's talking about the critical mind, his particular uh, habitual tendency of the critical mind. He says, when that shows up, he says, oh, there's my personality. <laughs> Can our personality be impersonal? Can we relinquish our identity with this or that being who I am, being me? even including positive emotional states or aversions, and even the specific gifts we might regard uh, as, and be identified with as the center of our being. As we let go of, as we relinquish thoughts of mine, me, or self, as we do this, equanimity will enter our hearts. How could anything we realize, we really truly realize as not me, not mine, not who I am, cause us agitation due to greed or lust or hatred or fear or grief? The teaching and the practice of not-self is our guide on the path to freedom, to liberation, our guide to perfect 
absolute equanimity. There's a particular teaching that the Buddha offered to his son Rahula, which is really a wonderful illustration of this, a wonderful not-self equanimity teaching. And I'd like to share this with you. And just beginning with a little background, uh, background story behind the sutta. Rahula, the uh, Buddha's 18-year-old son, was uh, following the Buddha on a particular day as they were on their way into the village for alms rounds. And with admiration, he noted the physical perfection uh, of his father, who was walking in front of him, and reflected with pride that he himself was of similar appearance, thinking, I too am handsome like my father, the Blessed One. The Buddha's form is beautiful, and so is mine. Well, the Buddha read Rahula's thoughts. Hard to have a father like that. No privacy whatsoever. The Buddha read Rahula's thoughts and decided to admonish him at once before such vain thoughts would lead him to much greater difficulties. The Buddha framed his advice in terms of contemplating the body as neither a self nor as uh, the possession of a self. Well, Rahula felt quite uh, rightly scolded by his father, and so he decided to sit down under a tree on the side of the road to reflect on this admonishment and the teaching, rather than to continue into the village for alms rounds with his father. But he was very quickly uh, distracted in conversation by Venerable Sariputta, who actually was his primary teacher, and who gave him some advice on uh, developing mindfulness of breathing, uh, because he... uh, saw Rahula sitting there and thinking that he was practicing mindfulness of breath. The teaching that I want to share with you that the Buddha offered to Rahula was given to him later that same evening. Uh, And it's a teaching about the quality of impartiality, a teaching of equanimity, in order to dispel Rahula's attachment to the body which had not yet been removed by the brief instruction on egolessness, we could say, of material form that the Buddha had given him earlier that day on their way to the village. And the Buddha uses the four great elements in this teaching. He uses the four great elements both as a metaphor and as a direct teaching in relationship to the body itself, simply being a composite of the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. And he also adds the element of space, in this case meaning all of the openings, the holes, the apertures in the body internally, and all of the space around, everywhere, externally. So this is the uh, sutta, the teaching. It's called The Greater Discourse of Advice to Rahula. Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people throw clean things and dirty things, such as excrement, urine, spittle, pus and blood on the earth, and the earth is not horrified, humiliated or disgusted because of that, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. 
For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Rahula, develop meditation that is like water. For when you develop meditation that is like water, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people wash clean and dirty things, such as excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood in water, and water is not horrified, humiliated, or disgusted because of that, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like water. For when you develop meditation that is like water, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Rahula, develop meditation that is like fire. For when you develop meditation that is like fire, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as fire burns clean things and dirty things, and he goes on as before, fire is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted because of that. So too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like fire. For when you develop meditation that is like fire, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Rahula, develop meditation that is like air. Just as air blows on clean things and dirty things, such as excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, and the air is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted because of that, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like air. For when you develop meditation that is like air, the arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. And lastly, he says, Rahula, develop meditation that is like space. For when you develop meditation that is like space, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as space is not established anywhere, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like space. For when you develop meditation that is like space, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Essentially, this is our practice. To whatever degree we abandon, we relinquish thoughts of mine, of me, of I am, to whatever degree we forsake thoughts of self, equanimity will enter our heart. When we realize, when we really truly come to know anything as void of a self, in those moments, how could it cause us any agitation due to lust, hatred, fear, or grief? Thus, the teaching and practice of anatta is our guide along the path to liberation, our guide along the path to perfect equanimity. Equanimity, the perfectly unshakable balance of mind, the unshakable balance of heart is rooted in insight. The first understanding, the first insight being that of anatta, and the second, or the first insight being that of kama, and the second being anatta. The heart, the mind of specific neutrality, isn't cold or heartless or dull. It doesn't manifest out of an emotional emptiness, 
but really out of a fullness or a completeness of connection and understanding. At some point in our practice, equanimity will evolve from being relative equanimity to absolute equanimity and will develop into an equanimity that is a manifestation of the highest strength and insight. In the progress of insight, when equanimity is strong, fulfilled, mature, concentration or samadhi and understanding occur coupled together without either one exceeding the other along with and in balance with all of the other factors of enlightenment. All of these occurring at that point with all of these occurring at that point with what has been called a single taste, the single taste of liberation, the single taste of, of awakening, the single taste of enlightenment, liberation from the kilesas, from the cankers, deliverance from suffering, the fruit, the deliverance, we could say, of equanimity is the escape from craving, the escape from greed. The word in Pali is tanha, the escape from insatiable thirst. At that point, there's insight knowledge into the dangers of afflictive emotions, dangers, the dangers of the defilements, and insight knowledge into the advantages of purification. Insight or understanding at that point produces what the Buddha called a satisfiedness, a purifiedness, and a clarifiedness within one which is all manifesting due to one's capacity for on-looking equanimity. And the Buddha spoke about this as absolute equanimity or unworldly equanimity or holy equanimity. And in the Buddha's words, just as all the streams of the world enter the great ocean and all the waters of the sky rain into it, but not increase or de- de- but not increase or decrease of the great ocean is seen such is the nature of holy equanimity i found once found a a very beautiful description uh, which i don't i don't remember where i found it where it came from Uh, of the liberated mind, the liberated heart, what is sometimes called six-limbed equanimity, and I'd like to share this with you. The mind and heart of an awakened one is likened to a clear, well-cut crystal. And because it's clear, without stains, it fully absorbs all the rays of light and sends them out again, intensified by the power and purity of its concentrated energy. The crystal can't be tainted by the colors of the rays. Its hardness can't be pierced. Its perfectly harmonious structure can't be disturbed. In its purity and strength, the crystal remains unchanged. In less poetic language, 
the equanimity of an awakened one is unshakable because it's absolute. It's absolute simply because it clings to nothing. And this is our possibility. As an aid, as nutriment for the arising and development of equanimity, the Buddha offers us some very specific directions. We're told to listen to, approach, attend to, to recollect and go forth, so to say, after monks, nuns, and laypersons who are accomplished in virtue, accomplished in sila, concentration, insight, and who have the knowledge and vision of liberation. It's said that hearing the Dhamma from such people is helpful. We're told to dwell mindfully and to investigate states, and that if we investigate with care and with wisdom, our energy will be aroused without slacking. And when this happens, a spiritual joy is aroused and developed. And when one's mind and heart is uplifted with spiritual joy, the body will become tranquil. And when the body is tranquil, one, one's mind becomes tranquil. And we're told that for one's body who is tranquil and who's quietly happy in heart and mind, the mind is very easily concentrated. And that when concentration develops and deepens, one looks on with equanimity at the mind that is concentrated. And the commentaries to the suttas tell us that there are some very particular conditions in the whole of our life that will help us towards the arising and development of equanimity. Developing and maintaining neutrality towards living beings is the first. The second is developing and maintaining neutrality toward inanimate objects. And the third, not spending a lot of time with possessive people. And the fourth, associating with people who maintain neutrality towards beings and inanimate objects. And the fifth, to make a resolve to incline the mind, incline the heart towards the arising development, (coughs) fulfillment, and protection or, or perfection of equanimity. All five of them? Okay. Developing and maintaining neutrality toward living beings. Developing and maintaining neutrality towards inanimate objects. Not spending a lot of time with possessive people. Associating with people who maintain neutrality towards beings and inanimate objects. And then lastly, to make a resolve to incline the mind, incline the heart, towards the arising, development, fulfillment, and perfection of equanimity. As we practice, we come to know when this factor of equanimity is in us. And we come to know when it's absent. We come to know how it arises and how its development comes about. And so we practice, here in retreat and at home in the midst of our daily lives. We practice with sincerity and with diligence. We sit with a growing understanding 
and the blossoming of insight. As awakening beings, we practice with aspiration and determination. And because of all of this, it's inevitable that the wholesome factors of mind and heart, as well as the liberating insights, will sprout, blossom, and eventually mature within us. It's our kama, we could say. And I'd like to uh, close the talk this evening with two short pieces from the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha. Whose mind stands like a mountain, steady, is not perturbed, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. When her or his mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her or him? And the second verse. When one who cling, for one who clings, motion exists, meaning the movement of the mind. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor any place betwixt the two. This, in truth, is the end of suffering. And let's sit together quietly for just a moment. Sorry.